From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Well-Being, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Welcome to Returns on Wellbeing. I'm Jim Purcell. Today we have Paul Clark, Principal of Clark and Levy Benefit Solutions. Their mission is to help employers keep costs down, stay compliant, and maintain a positive work environment. Paul is the founder of Clark and Levy over 20 years ago, and prior to that, Paul worked with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts in sales and marketing, so he really knows the health insurance and related product industry. And having worked with Paul myself, I know him to be extremely knowledgeable regarding the entire field of health insurance, self-insurance, and even workplace wellness. Uh, welcome to Returns on Wellbeing, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. and glad to be here. Paul, tell us what you and Clark and Levy do for your client employers. Well, we're a, a range of uh, issues that we help solve for our clients, but the, uh, the main stock and trade of what we do is... When a prospective client uh, approaches us and uh, brings us in, the first thing that we try to do is, is really go in and analyze where they are right now. Um, the key to successfully either consulting, brokering on what we refer to as the EB, employee benefit space, mm -hmm. is really understanding what they have in place, what issues are impacting their cost structures, their benefit structures, their employee relations issues. And we try to help them solve, not just for one product as so many of our competitors out there in the marketplace do, but really how does the entire benefits package, health, dental, life, disability, voluntary products, and even what some would coin the financial services industry, and flexible spending accounts and health reimbursement arrangements, we really try to solve for the entire solution and how all of those elements are interacting to provide the employee experience that an employer is looking to provide to attract and retain good employees without breaking the piggy bank. So that's, that's, my, uh, that's my elevator speech. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, my questions today will be with the, within the context of health care coverage, both conventional health insurance and self-insurance. I know you do more than that, but uh, would you say that uh, the health side of the uh, equation is one of your specialties? Uh, yes. It's, uh, as you had mentioned, I came from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield world, uh, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and uh, my specialty was in dealing with large accounts, which at the time were defined as 500 lives plus. We did also work with uh, smaller accounts uh, throughout my tenure there. So, But the health insurance arena is the, the biggest cost driver, and it, it has the most focus typically. <laughs> yeah, it's the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, I, I, I know for a fact you are considered a very fine, sophisticated broker, so I'd like to hear from you what you think an employer should be looking for in a broker. Well, I, I appreciate the positive comments, and uh, I'll, I will take that. So. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the, the key that 
we try to, you know, educate consumers of our services is you really have to find a broker slash consultant who is going to not just plug and play and, and just go out and kind of throw the old proverbial you-know-what against the wall. The most important element, if I were in the marketplace for a broker consultant, would be what type of interactions are they having with my, my finance staff and HR staff Mm-hmm. And are they guiding us with ideas that are new and creative? Are they just kind of quoting to quote? You know, you've seen it in the past where a lot of the brokers uh, that run around today, their ideas of providing good service to a client is going out, getting 10 quotes, coming in and, you know, doing the old spreadsheet analysis, which, you know, does that serve a function for some accounts? Sure, it can. But someone who's more consultative in their approach, what are your, the client's three to five year objectives? What are your obstacles? What are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm really trying to say is someone who becomes part of my organization, you know, to use the old uh, Ross Perot analogy, you know, where you're uh, outsource, insource of HR and finance services. Mm-hmm. That to me is the most important element to finding a good partnership relationship with a broker consultant. Yep. And, and one of the biggest issues with employers today is the attraction and retention of uh, talent, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, especially given the economy, which uh, luckily now we're seeing a tremendous amount of positive uh, influence uh, throughout the marketplace. The, the benefits packages are overwhelmingly a major priority for employers trying to, you know, attract and retain good, good candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, in today's environment, Paul, what percentage of employers with, say, over 200 employees are self-insured? You know, that's a great question, uh, Jim. I, I, I looked at, you know, our structure, and it's over 85%. And I would tell you, without having the actual metrics, because it's, it's hard when you look at some of the national studies, but I would submit that the majority of large employers are either self-funded already, probably in excess of 75%, and I would state that the rest are just on their way there now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the activity in this space has quadrupled in the past two years. Yeah. Um, whether that be from PPACer or other issues and, you know, the creation of the captive market space coming down range. So it's, you know, not just the Walmarts and the uh, Dow Chemicals that can self-fund in a captive space. Uh, but I think that there's a, a, a big push in the finance offices to say, hey, look, we need to take back our premiums. And uh, the only way to really do that truly is through self-funding. From what you said then, for that size employer, that is an option that you believe absolutely must be considered, right? Absolutely. Um, There are a few times where we'll walk into an organization and, you know, they have extremely high claims. They have a very ill population. Factors like that that would sometimes say, this might not be right right now, but let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's look at it mm-hmm. each year to see what the numbers present. Um, but that's, those are the fewer and far betweens. Right. Um, how small, in your opinion, can an employer be and still self-insure? That's another great question, Jim. 
Um, now, I have to break this out. If you're talking about just straight self-insure, i.e. self-insure on their own, we typically recommend that companies from about 100, 150 lives on really start looking at it. Once you're above 200, it's, it absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, that's self-insuring, i.e. I just want to go and completely take all the risk. The advent, and as you know, we have been uh, instrumental in the uh, captive solution process. It has really provided smaller employers, defined as, say, 50 employees and up, a huge opportunity to join the self-funded market space because basically you're going into, and I'm using improper terms here just to get the point across, you're going into a large association or an aggregated purchasing pool where if you have a horrible year one year, the losses are spread amongst the pool. So it's very much of a collective tool that has really brought the ability for employers 50 lives and up to be able to self-fund without potentially going through some of the extremes of having a really bad year. Mm So, uh, and we're going to get into more about the the captive uh, solution in a moment, but the uh, it sounds to me like virtually any employer, particularly employers who believe their employees are healthier or are on a track for getting healthier, they must consider some form of self-insurance, probably with stop-loss coverage and maybe using a captive, right? Absolutely. I would say that if they're not, I would project that company will be seeing massive increases and be you know, a huge detriment to itself. It would be a grave mistake in my Right. Um, talk about some of the pros and cons about self-insuring. Sure, sure. Um, so, the you know, one of the elements that when we're first talking with a potential uh, candidate or prospective, prospective client, First thing that we always try to ascertain is, you know, what's your cash flow? All right, do you have a handle on the cash flow? You know, it's very difficult question to really pinpoint because some organizations do, some don't, some are dependent upon the state or federal funding, and it can make it more difficult. So that's that's question number one that we always try to uh, come to a conclusion on, or at least get a, a good grip on. The other elements are. Is the C-suite or are the C-suite individuals, are they going to be involved in the process? All too often we see that, you know, they're involved once a year, and realistically that is not enough. I mean, in today's new environment, the C-suite and the HR departments really need to be working together, or at least what we do is we schedule quarterly meetings with our clients where we engage the CEO, the CFO, and the HR representatives and we bring them into this fold to say, okay, here is what's occurring. Here are the real metrics of what's driving your health care indicators. And here are the items that we can control. We've, uh, our VP of HR, a uh, gentleman by the name of Armando Llorente, he's coined the phrase control the controllables. So uh, that's another element. And then it actually kind of touches upon one of the final elements, or you know, at least for that initial staging, is are they willing to look past the we have a five dollar copay here this you know just a pure benefits play and say what is our strategy 
how are we going to help reduce our claims losses so that we can provide a good or rich benefits package to the employees, create an environment where there's skin in the game, where the employees have to benefit in some way, but so does the employer. That is a critical element in self-funding because, Mm -hmm. again, if you're self-funding on your own, everything that you and your employees do has a major, major impact on your numbers. Mm -hmm. If you're self-funding through a captive, a little bit less so, but the principles are still the same. And you want to see that skin-in-the-game engagement from not only the C-suite but the employees. So those are a couple of the key elements that we try to find out and uh, ascertain. Yep. now, for, for those who might not be uh, f- completely familiar with self-insurance, the idea is it's actually a non-sequitur because self-insurance is not insurance at all. It is uh, a financing mechanism by which the employer becomes ultimately responsible for the claims expense of the employees, right? Couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> okay. And yet, uh, if, if, if I'm a, a CEO of a smaller company of, say, 100 employees, I'm worried to death about a catastrophic claim. Um, how do self-insureds protect themselves against catastrophic claims? You talked a little bit about the pooling mechanism um, with, with re- regard to captives, but there is also stop-loss insurance, right? Absolutely. Again, um, you know, a very, very pointed question. Um, the key with any self-funding, now, I don't care if you're a group of 2,000 lives or 200. In that market space, self-funding is a matter of knowing your risk levels, knowing your risk levels and also appropriately applying the correct reinsurance amounts or, as you referred to, stop-loss levels to have the proper protections in place. There are two that are really critical to any organization, in my estimation, in in this, let's call it the 200 through 2,000 size range. The first one is called specific stop loss. And basically, that is an insurance product or a reinsurance product that prevents X dollars only going to the employer. So let me use an example. Typically, the most common specific stop-loss number that we see out there, or level is probably a better way of saying it, is $50,000. So what that is saying is this employer will pay the first $50,000 of any individual's claim. From that point on, the reinsurer, whether it be a Nationwide or an AIG or a Symmetra or, you know, there are numerous carriers out there, they would pick up the remainder of that person's claims. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of people, they'd say, okay, well, that's great. We're protected. Oh, wait a minute now. So that's wonderful that we've protected ourselves for each individual. But what happens if you have a catastrophic year, and just to be a little crazy, uh, let's say we had 30 people that hit their specific stop-loss levels. Mm -hmm. Well, now the projection of claims, which they always refer to it as either 100% or 125, they refer to that as the aggregate attachment point, now you're starting to talk about another level when you have a really bad year. So that second element that is critical for companies of this size is to put in place what we call aggregate stop loss, which is basically an umbrella or a cap on the worst case scenario. So let me give you an example. Let's just say, and I'll use small numbers just to, to hopefully make sense here. 
let's just say that we look at a company, company X, and we say they're going to produce $100,000 in claims. Now, that's claims for doctor's visits, for surgeries, for drugs, et cetera, et cetera. The aggregate cap is usually expressed in predominantly two numbers, 125%, rarely 110%. But in this case, what the aggregate cap does, it says, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Employer, we're projecting you to have 100,000 in claims. The risk corridor or your risk factor is 25%. Mm-hmm. So the most that we will allow you to pay out in claims in total, if you had the world's worst possible year, would be 125% of the $100,000. Right. In this way, you're really protecting for all of the avenues. So for that owner who's saying, geez, I could really you know, completely destroy our budgets or blow past our projections, these two-level programs, the specific stop-loss and the aggregate stop-loss, really provide what we term a fully insured, self-insured program. Now, if you were to ask the Division of Insurance, they wouldn't agree with my terminology, but it's the simplest way to really get across the point that you really do have coverage and your real risk is that additional 25%. Yep. And when you go the self-insured route, you immediately save certain expenses that you would pay as a fully insured uh, employer, right? Ah, carrier profits. You are 100% correct, sir. <laughs> and those would be <laughs> such things as um, the underwriting risk factor for a traditional insurer. It would be such things as... Um, uh, Premium the, taxes, right. taxes uh, budget factors, assessments, things like that. You know, the funny like part is, Jim, that if you were to look at what we're really talking about in self-funding, basically all of the health carriers out there, all of them, they're really a captive in and of themselves. They're basically putting all of their risk into one major pool, and then they're putting stop-loss levels on their book of business. Mm-hmm. Now, predominantly, like if you look at some of the traditional carriers, the, you know, the BUCA plans, the Blue Cross Association plans, or the, the Harvard Pilgrims in this area, the United, the Aetnas, they probably have specific stop-loss levels of between 75000 and 150000 and then their aggregate numbers are based on their entire book, which mm-hmm. is obviously in the you know, millions and maybe even billions, depending upon the size of the right. carrier. But they're basically doing the same thing that we can now do for smaller clients in the self-funding space um, because it really is, I mean, when you get a premium quote, and don't hold me to the exact numbers, but a couple of the examples you used are right on the money. There are some taxes in there. There are some fudge factors for underwriting. Well, if we're going to quote this product, let's add in a couple of extra percent just in case our projections are wrong. You do away with all those things. Um, you know, federal taxes, there, there are a few that are avoidable under the self-funding because in a self-funded environment, you release yourself from the state laws and subjugate yourself, not that you weren't anyway, but you subjugate yourself to the federal laws under the ERISA provision, which mm-hmm. is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Right. Um, so, yes, there are a number of different taxes. I mean, we guesstimate that anywhere between 10 and 20%, depending upon the carrier, depending upon the region, can be saved just in administrative or what we refer to as fixed costs. Mm -hmm. The costs you're going to incur 
to administrate the plan, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, and, and that's that's consistent with what I've seen too. And we understand that as a broker, as an advisor, you would say from year to year that can change. But on average for the average plan, you're looking at between 10, 20% savings, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Paul, as you know, I, I'm writing a book, which uh, I will title Returns on Well-Being, and its premise is that by building a workplace culture of well-being and implementing the right programs, one can dramatically improve uh, the health of employees and lower coverage costs. Uh, if an employer wants to go that route, how important, in your opinion, is it to self-insure? I realize that's a softball, Paul, but go ahead and hit it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, it, it, you Believe it or not, in respect to that particular question, it doesn't matter whether you self-insure or, or you're on a premium basis. The real critical factor is the size of your group. If you're subject to small group reform, i.e. 50 employees and under, it has less of an impact because the carriers aren't supposed to be taking into effect or consideration the company's actual claims experience. Mm -hmm. It's just supposed to be kind of a pooled level. But I will state this. If you're self-insured, it has a much larger impact because if you truly get to a wellness program like we institute, where it really does have the mechanics to drive down the medical loss ratios, and it has the mechanics to reward the employees and the employer, um, you see dramatic results. And, I'll and it goes right to the bottom line, right? It goes right to the bottom line. And to the employee, what that means is less coming out of their paycheck in payroll contributions. Sure. So there's, there's, there's got to be that win-win scenario, and it really does have to be a conscious, active decision from the C-suite all the way down. But uh, as a live example, we had a medical client. Now, they were a little bit larger. They, they were about uh, 400 employees. And when we first started working with them, their loss ratio, so this is just the actual dollars being paid out on claims, was 3.57. So for every dollar they were paying, the insurance company was paying out $3.57 in claims only. Ooh. We're not even talking about the administration. When we put the Orion, which is our, our wellness program name, we put the Orion plan in. Within two years, we had their claims loss ratios down to 0.85. That's that dramatic. It's just it's absolutely fantastic. That's good. And uh, we have had such tremendous success. I honestly can't think of an account that we haven't had at least a five-point difference, i.e., reduction in claims. And this is once um, you bring in uh, someone like an Orion. Uh, that is to do health and wellness, well-being, and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. That is correct. Now, um, you, you've worked quite a bit with Orion and uh, Daryl Moon, I take it. Daryl is the CEO of Orion. He is, and uh, yes, we have. They're, they, We are convinced, uh, Jim, that they are truly the only real wellness plan. I'm, I'm very uh, accustomed to using the terms fluffy, um, you know, I was actually on one of the one of the Tiger teams at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mass when I was there early on in my career. That you know, we went out and we developed all the strategies for wellness, and oh, we'll give people $150 to go to the gym, and we'll you know pay them to do this and that. And quite frankly, they sound good, they look 
good, you know, brown bag lunches coming in, this, that, and the other thing. They don't do anything. The people, what we came to the conclusion with, the people that go to the gym, they're going to go to the gym and be healthy. Mm-hmm. It's the other folks that we're trying to engage. And Daryl right. really found the secret. And the secret was we don't want people being forced into some cookie-cutter wellness plan. And I always refer to uh, being, excuse my uh, military terminology here, but it's hard to take the Marine out of the boy. We're not going to force them into a boot camp or P90X type program where we know 90% of the people will just turn off. Mm -hmm. What he found was by engaging the member and getting them to come up with their own plan, that that engages them and keeps them going in the long term. And it really, I mean, we were a little skeptical at first. This is going back years ago. But I've got to tell you, he was right on the money. And it has been, you know, just a complete turnaround what we've seen for wellness programs. Mm -hmm. Um, The members get engaged. I mean, is there a little bit of heartache to the employer? Yes, there is. Anything that's worth doing isn't easy because otherwise everyone would do it. So, you know, for a couple of months, the employer has to really put the message out there and explain why and explain and, and highlight. And, and we do these things for them, but they have to give us the opportunity to do it. Right. What sort of results have you seen from Orion's efforts? Absolutely uh, incredible. I would say we, we, uh, we did a little polling, and we would say from, you know, looking at our experience that almost 100% of our companies that have brought Orion in that have improved their MLRs. We've had one or two that have had some tough years, but they had tough years because they had, um, you know, just really bad claims years, mm-hmm. unknown cancers, things like that. I mean, you can't prevent everything. No. But um, on the whole, I would say if I were to, I'll change it around a little bit and say, what would the grade I would give Orion for their performance with our clients? A plus. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's superb. Um, yep. any, any thoughts you'd like to share on where you see employer health care coverage going in the future? Um, I think, you know, as we try to uh, always look t- five years out, there's no question in my mind that uh, more and more clients uh, will be going in the captive structure, especially those between the 50 and 200 life range. Literally, if we have 20 quotations or renewals up right now, I would say 19 are at least seeking uh, proposals on the captive structure. Um, I think that what we see, or or I'm going to change my wording, what we hope to also be uh, indications of a trend is that we see more of the C-suite and HR folks working together and realizing that we can't just let them run this you know, by themselves. It has to be a coordinated effort with a good consultant. I mean, you know, like I said, we schedule quarterly meetings to come in and, and engage the people. But we're, we're starting to see a trend where that's occurring. Not nearly as much as we'd like, but we are definitely seeing a trend in that. And I think that is just absolutely a perfect scenario because it will truly allow us to go in and work with clients to improve their own employees' health and cost basis. Mm-hmm. And if we can create that win-win, that's, that's a good deal. Yep. Um, I, I, I have been suggesting and will suggest in my book that CEOs have been largely missing in action in yes. this particular arena, and it should be their number one strategic imperative 
to not just reduce your healthcare coverage costs, but increase the well-being of your employees so that they are more engaged, more productive, less turnover, and you just do the right thing by them. You care for them. Um, I, I know enough about you and Daryl Moon that you, you both agree. Is that right? I totally agree with that. It's, yeah. uh, uh, the more we see on the C-suite getting engaged, the happier I become because it truly, if they see what you just said, they'll see their company profits start to go up. I mean, it reminds me of the old, uh, you ever seen the iceberg chart where you see a quarter of it up top and then the three quarters down below is where everything's really going on. Right. And uh, I think there's, it's a win-win. I mean, we are always trying to look for the win-win. Well, thank you very much. And that concludes our podcast interview of Paul Clark of Clark & Levy. Paul, thank you very much. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns on well-being.